Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, John Balio. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, <laughs> reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from, uh, not from Alfred the Great, from Kenneth McAlpin to James the Sixth. You that, put me off with your enthusiasm. That is a blast from the past, Graham. <laughs> and there's the sirens. Straight away, well. this is in a textbook start. Welcome to 2010. Oh dear. Oh, there's another one. Troubles afoot here at the Rex Factor Studios. So, John Balliol today. Mm-hmm. A King John. Oh, yes. Scottish yeah. one. Okay. Is there more than one John? Spoiler alert. Uh, no. Okay. So is King John. Just King John. Okay. A uh, bit of backgroundy stuff for mm. John. Um, we recall Alexander III, the last Rex Factor winner that we had, who oversaw a golden age of peace and prosperity, but then yeah. within a decade had this awful tragedy where his wife and his three children all died. Oh, yes. And then he himself died falling from a horse in 1286, trying to get to be with his young new wife. Pretty cool. So, he didn't have any uh, children, but he does have one granddaughter, who is Margaret the Maid of Norway. Yes. The problem was that she was three years old and in Norway. Mm. So we had the Guardians of Scotland set up, who were protecting the kingdom, waiting for her to come over. Yeah. When she's about seven, she gets put on a ship at Bergen, sent over to become Queen of Scots, but she falls ill on the way and dies of seasickness. Yeah, that's bad news for Margaret. So the direct royal line had failed, and the Scots now needed to work out who was going to be king. And they called in help from a neutral, trustworthy bystander, Edward I of England. Now, he, I thought, had a great plan, but see previous episodes, and it could have all gone swimmingly. But something I don't think I asked Mm. was, who was the actual um, next in line using... Primogeniture, you mean? Yeah. So the next one in terms of primogeniture was the person that Edward and the court ultimately decided was the rightful King of Scots. Oh, we did do this, yeah. John Balliol. Okay. Hence, hence why we're here. Hence why we're here doing I John Balliol How today. many episodes have we done? I've got the hang of it. <laughs> so, uh, John Balliol is the son of John Balliol, That's or John helpful. de Balliol, if you wish, and uh, Derva Gwilla of Galloway. Now, he's born roughly between 1248 and 1250. Details that's, are a little bit scanty. That's that's right in the sweet spot for me, that, <laughs> that history period. Either way, he's in his mid-40s when he becomes king in 1292. So that that's the ideal age. Ideal days, age. Yeah. And is he going to be the ideal king? We don't have any uh, contemporary portraits or photographs of him, of course. But, Ali, what's he going to look like on the Heritage Playing Card Limited's artist depiction of him? I love this. Um, I'm expecting a, a Scottish... Edward I, broadly. Mm-hmm. Armour. Yeah. Big sword. Mm-hmm. Probably a nod to Scotland with some tartan. Because uh, it's fighty. It's fighty. I'm not expecting much wisdom looking looking mm. uh, wise there. But, so here we go, and... Oh. 
I don't know how to persuade people <laughs> that I genuinely never ever see these. But I was not expecting this. We've got uh, Little John with shiny metal socks. Fat. And he's not waving a sword off. He's grabbing it. He's grabbing a sword with both hands like he has no idea how to use it. That's... And he's the Joker. Hmm. The... I mean, he's got a red artist smock on. I'm not expecting much now. Is it? Uh, is it armory? His top? Is it regal? Is it? No, not really. I mean, it looks like he's just sort of cut a hole in a red piece of cloth <laughs> and flung it over his shoulders. The, his nice shiny red, uh, his shiny metal socks are presumably some armor underneath there. Mm. But did he have a nickname, Iron Legs or Armored Legs or? His nickname is Tomb Tabard, which means empty cloak or empty coat, which we will explain okay. as his reign progresses. I just shot him a confused look there. So. <laughs> did. Now, in terms of where the Balliols come from, because obviously, usually, we don't really need to do this because we can just say, see previous 20 episodes of Rex Factor to understand yeah. where this family's come from. But the Balliol family is a new dynasty Yeah. in terms of royal terms. Um, they're originally a Norman family from um, Picardy. Hence the French. Uh, in particular, a place called Bayou. Right. Oh, no, as Not it, as in, uh, I, I was worried about this, in terms <laughs> of trying to pronounce it correctly, but not imply it's the Bayou Tapestry. Uh, B-A-I-L-L-E-U-L. Oh, that is, that is really very tricky to pronounce. Uh, I think it's in the Somme, roughly. That sort of territory. Um, so, Guy de Balliol was um, given part of the former earldom of Northumberland by William Rufus. Right, so, so he's way brought, back. Brought over into the frontiers, really, between England and Scotland. Um, then we've got a Bernard, who uh, actually swore homage to King David I of Scots, but more interestingly, he establishes Barnard Castle, which ah. is, of course, named after Bernard. Right. Okay. Quick question. Mm. So he's got this French heritage. Yes. Why is, is he then seen as a Scottish lord rather than as English as the. English nobility, which all also came over from France in 1066. So sort of his, his family's one of that tranche, isn't he? Well, we'll come to um, his, his claim to the throne okay. and his Scottishness. But David I, you'll remember, was, um, kind of grew up at the court of Henry I mm. of England. So actually David I brings a lot of Anglo-Norman lords to Scotland. So a lot of the powerful families in Scotland right. are actually Anglo-Norman at this point. Okay, Not exclusively, but a lot of them have Norman origins. Um, another notable um, Balliol was Bernard II, who led the attack at Annick, where William the Lion was captured. Oh, right. Okay. But that's yeah. for the English against the Scots. Mm, yeah. So, as you say, the Balliol family not entirely no. Scottish. <laughs> um, now, we had um, a message a while ago from Sarah White which I thought would be relevant to bring up at this point. She said, In the episodes on Edward I, I'm disappointed you didn't mention the crowning achievement of Balliol's father founding the best college at Oxford. My father is a Balliol man, and in some ways his time there was responsible for my birth. Brackets, long story. <laughs> we're going to that. If I, had a t- <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I heard about effortless superiority, I would be a very rich woman. Why? Uh, I guess it's a... Uh, a Balliol thing. Balliol thing. <laughs> it's a Jersey thing. So, John Balliol's father, John de Balliol, um, was one of the initial protectors in the minority of Alexander III, so he was kind of a counsellor for Henry III. 
So again, still quite English in his yeah. outlook. But he had a dispute with the then Bishop of Durham. So as penance, he agreed to fund um, scholars studying at Oxford. So oh. in 1263, because of this, we get Balliol yeah. College. Right, I had no idea those two were connected. Mm-hmm. And when you were pronouncing the French as the second time, that's presumably it's getting twisted and changed yeah. and anglicised. Right. Now his mother, Dervigwilla... So she is the daughter of the man that made you laugh, Alan of Galloway. Did he? Oh, Alan! Yes, Yes, poor Alan. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And also Margaret of Huntingdon, who is the granddaughter of David I. Mm. So through her, John Balliol has got his descent from the Scottish royal line. It's quite distant, isn't it? It is, but that's what happens when they run out of of heirs. Um, And she's very wealthy, because the um, lordship of Galloway... She has mm. lots of other land as well. So actually, her husband kind of runs out of money and dies. So it's actually Dervagwilla that pays for most of Balliol College. Oh, uh, right. So it's just given that name because yeah. he's the chap. Yeah. Though apparently the History Society, though, is named after her. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. This is something. Anyway, on to John Balliol himself. Yes. He's only the fourth son of John de Balliol and Dervagwilla, but they right. all predecease him. Fighty or illy? Uh, I think just illy. Hmm. So he's probably actually attended for the church originally, but he ends up having to do the family job of becoming yeah. a baron. So he went to school in Durham. Oh, said, probably training to be a monk. A bit like G-Man. Indeed. Well, well, yeah. Um, and apparently it's quite rare for the time, but we actually have evidence that he was able to read. Why is that weird? It's just, I don't know if it's that they, the aristocrats in Scotland couldn't, or if it's the fact that it's unusual to really be able to say with certainty that he could. Right. But we know about John that there are accounts of him reading petitions out loud. Oh, and that's perhaps right. because he may have been better educated than some of that the other Scottish nobles because he was training to be a monk. So up until this point, actually, there's a bit of presumption going on that they could. And this is the first time we've had someone uh, detailing the fact that he was reading something out loud. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. Hmm. So the death of his father and his brother saw him inherit the Balliol estates, which are based in Northumberland and Huntingdon in England, but Mm. also uh, Picardy over in France. And he marries uh, an English lady, Isabel de Warren, in uh, 1281. So that brings him a bit more prestige and lands and wealth and whatnot. But a bit less Scottish. Still not massively Scottish. But in 1290, his mother died, leaving him the Lordship of Galloway. All right. She is properly Scottish and makes him very, very wealthy and quite well connected Mm. with some people in Scotland. Unlike his brothers, he hadn't actually sought a career in English royal service. So Mm. he's perhaps a bit less fully Anglo-Norman than some of his predecessors. Um, But his wife and sisters-in-law are pretty much based in England. And other than one sister who marries the powerful Scottish noble John Comyn, he doesn't really have a lot of big ties in Scotland. And actually, prior to 1286, his main concern is probably Picardy. Because well, it's more powerful on the continent or yeah. wealthier. Yeah. Everyone loves a bit of French land, don't they, these days? You've got to love the French. But Scotland starts to become rather more prominent in his thoughts when we have all of that dynastic crisis that mm. we talked about in the backgroundy stuff. So when Margaret the Maid of Norway dies and Edward I comes along to determine who the rightful king is, there are 13 candidates, but realistically the best claims were John Balliol mm. by primogeniture. Mm i.e. the eldest of the eldest. Yeah, just following the line as you would. And Robert Bruce. Yeah. Not the Bruce, and not, as you asked last time, the leper. 
the father of him? The father of the leper. So the grandfather of Robert the Bruce. God, they're going to drop like flies, aren't they? Well, this guy's pretty old. He's okay. a whole generation older, so his claim is by nearness of blood, because uh, yeah, yeah. he's okay, a generation so you, closer yeah. to the last monarch. Um, anyway, the court rule in favour of John Balliol on the 17th of November in 1292, and Edward very quickly, just two days later, gave instructions for Balliol to be given this sort of season of Scotland, given back control and all the keys of power, handed so he, over it to him. So, and does he at this point remove his um, control of the castles? He does hand back the castles as well. Oh. It's all going back. He's okay. All perfectly this above board. good egg, Edward. I mean, there was a £100,000 fine if he didn't do it all within two months, but I'm sure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sure enough, on the 30th of November, John Balliol is inaugurated in the traditional ceremony as king at Schoon. So now we rate him. Well, we don't quite rate him because he's just become king oh, and he's yeah. not dead. Uh. But there are some challenges for John Balliol, rather bigger challenges perhaps than some of his predecessors have been facing. Is it Brucey? Well, that's one of them. I mean, what, it's difficult to make the transition from being a baron to being a king when you're not actually trained to rule. Yeah, and he kind of, um, as you're saying, if he's the youngest anyway, he presumably wasn't really being trained to be a baron either. No. Oh, so he's really been promoted. Mm. <laughs> At least Henry VIII had it from a young age. Yes, yeah, so I suppose if we think maybe to a Stephen or to a Henry IV in yeah. terms of comparison in England, kings that struggle to make that transition yeah. from one to the other um as you said the bruce family and their allies don't really show him any loyalty at all they don't they're not rebelling necessarily but they're certainly not really falling into line and accepting they've got a grump the decision they've got a grump they still want to be king Hmm. so he's got something of a divided kingdom but the bigger problem is really south of the border really I thought Edward would be happy with this situation. He made the right legal decision in terms of the great cause. Most Mm. historians think that Balliol does have the best claim, but Edward rather took advantage of the situation. I think it's fair to say. He forced all of the candidates to do him homage before their candidature was acknowledged. So if you wanted to be king, you had to do submission to Edward. So he's already got John Balliol having done homage to him in a way that the previous kings of Scots had been careful to distinguish between doing homage for English land and as a Scot. He could have done that for his Huntington lands, couldn't he? But he couldn't. No, because of the terms of what Edward laid down. Um, He also was presenting himself as lead lord of Scotland, Mm. Lord Paramount, and basically challenged the Scots to prove otherwise. Mm. So he's already considers himself now the feudal lord of Scotland. <laughs> so, I mean, there's arrogance, I'll give, I'll give you that. But there's also a certain reality. So Balliol's independence is compromised before he even becomes king. Yeah. Now, at the Schoon ceremony, where he's inaugurated as king, this is an ancient ceremony, but it's presided over by Anthony Beck, who is Edward's rather belligerent Bishop of Durham. Oh, he was the guy who went up before Edward and just sort of generally annoyed everyone. Yeah, and just Mm. tried to take control of everything. And also a guy called John de St. John, (laughs) who was deputising for the infant Earl of Fife, because usually the Earl of Fife is the one that kind of does the... What is that? Just tradition. That's the tradition. Okay. Um, but he's too young, so it's an English knight. Mm. So you've got an English bishop and an English knight presiding over John Balliol well, becoming king, and Edward has already been the one that effectively decided that he became king in the first place. And he's given homage to the English. It's a hell of a statement, isn't it? Well, he's not finished doing homage because oh. Edward wants to be quite clear that now he's king. 
yeah. is the homage is definitely still there. So at Christmas, which obviously isn't very far away because it was 30th of November when he was crowned, um, he requires Balliol to come to Newcastle to spend Christmas with him. Oh, that's nice. And then on the uh, on Boxing Day, he swears homage to Edward in pretty unambiguous terms. Let's hear it. Lord Edward, <laughs> Lord Superior of the Realm of Scotland, I, John Balliol, King of Scots, become your liegeman for the whole realm of Scotland. That's pretty clear cut, isn't it? He must have been grinning from ear to <laughs> ear when he heard that. Because previously, all the King's Scots have been so careful to distinguish and make clear that they're not doing homage for yeah. Scotland. And Alexander III, when Edward I had tried to get him to do that, had made clear, no, I can't do it for the whole of Scotland. The mm. Guardians had said, no, no, we're not empowered to do this. But now, he's got him trapped. Yeah. I mean, what could he... So, presumably, if he didn't do that, there'd be war and Edward would back Bruce and all mm. that. Mm. Right. Uh, and then a few weeks later, into 1293, he requires Balliol to pop along and see him again. And now Balliol has to formally release Edward from all the promises he made between 1286 and 1292 relating to Scottish independence and how Edward won't interfere, including the Treaty of Bergen, which was the very tight um, treaty where there was going to be the marriage between Margaret, the Maid of Norway, mm. and Edward's son. And it stipulated clearly no parliaments to be had outside of Scotland, all ch- appointments done within Scotland. It was very, very careful. But and it, but that still would have worked in England's favour at the time because it, they're mm. proposing a and a, yeah the children to marry yeah okay so right. now Balliol's had to basically say to Edward oh don't worry about that it's fine what was his motivation there Edwards it, or Balliol's? Edwards um, because he wants to interfere wouldn't he be able to interfere now I mean <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not for a moment suggesting that uh, Edward hadn't thought about this. But wouldn't he have been able to interfere given that Balliol had already sworn him the oath previously? But there were still commitments about what he could and couldn't do, and I think the papacy had kind of assured that treaty. Okay. So there was a danger that if Edward started going against the terms of that treaty, the Scots could appeal to the Pope, and the Pope could say, hey, this isn't what we agreed. Whereas now Balliol said, nope, scrap that. And the Pope would go along with that as ref? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, sure enough, Edward becomes something of a backseat driver Mm. for Scotland. Um, He wanted to make what was essentially a theoretical legal dominance that he got over Balliol and Scotland reality. Yeah. So um, he'd done this in Wales previously as well, so he would have officials sitting in judgment on Welsh cases. He'd summon vassal princes to answer lawsuits in England. Mm. It's that same thing, just kind of eking away. Yeah, and just anglicising the important bits of government so that it all becomes the same. So very early in the reign, there's something of a test case involving a chap called Roger Bartholomew, who's the Burgess of Berwick. Um, He appealed against judgments made against him by the Guardians, whilst waiting for Margaret Maid of Norway to become Queen. Um, So repudiating the Burgum Treaty, Edward hears his case at Newcastle, i.e. outside of Scotland, and uh, does indeed change one of the rulings that went against this guy. Um, he was always likely to do that, wasn't he? Hmm. Just to prove the point. More important, however, was the case of Macduff. Now, Macduff is of the Fife dynasty, that earldom. Now, the previous Earl of Fife had been murdered in 1289. All burning? Uh, no, I think a bit of a stabbing. Okay. A bit of a stabbing. So Fife, after that, had been ruled by Bishop Fraser, because the next Earl is just a child, so isn't able to rule. Um, now, the Earl's uncle, this Macduff... 
um, was opposed to Fraser and how he's treating the lands. And he ended up being imprisoned. And when he gets released, he appeals to Edward in 1293. So Edward holds the court and summons John Balliol to come to England and answer the case. But Balliol thinks, well, I'm king of Scotland. I'm not going to go to a, you know, a trial in England. So he sends a proxy. Edward makes it clear in no uncertain terms that John Balliol is going to appear in person. To answer for to Bishop's answer case. for this yeah. case. So sure enough, back comes John Balliol. He does. He has to do it. What's more, Edward makes him renew his homage and then pay Edward's Chamberlain £20 for the fee of having to organise the performance of the homage. <laughs> That's just taking the mickey, isn't it? So John of Forden relates that... John, at uh, Balliol this is, John Balliol fulfilled these commands, and having undergone from all numberless insults and slights against his kingly rank and dignity, he returned home very greatly crestfallen. Yeah, and 20 quid lighter in the pocket. <laughs> yeah, for worse off. So basically he's just getting humiliated, his reputation is taking an absolute battering at home, Ed was just having his way with him. And also, 20 quid, I mean, isn't an awful lot these days it's more than the hourly average hourly wage but presumably to a king also wasn't an awful lot of money mm. in those times it was just sort of if it were an awful lot of money it would be more of a statement if it was a peppercorn <laughs> rent a uh, peppercorn amount then the same but 20 quid it's like it's some sort of official admin fee. Yeah. it's really just twisting really the niggly. knife yeah it's like it's such a small amount for a king that he probably wouldn't have that money yeah <laughs> yeah to... i mean that's what i was going to ask is how <laughs> yeah. he paid it but no i suppose no one knows but now, in 1294, Edward gets a bit of a nasty surprise when it comes to feudal rights and legal cases. Edward rules Gascony in France as a duchy, technically owing feudal homage to the King of France, Philip IV. Oh, I bet he doesn't like that. Well, I mean, they've got on pretty well uh, previously, so he's got no issue there. But then Philip surprises him by calling him, by calling Edward, to the French court to answer charges about a conflict with um, some French, English and Gascon soldiers. Was this because of his actions in Scotland? I don't think it was because of that, but he obviously, I guess he just wants... He's playing a game, like, in the way that Edward is. Yeah. Philip wants, you know, all of his French stuff back. So when Edward doesn't appear at the French court because he thinks, well, I'm a king, I'm not going to court... 20 francs? He doesn't get a fine, but he's deprived of his duchy. Oh, that's more. Well, Edward <laughs> considers this a declaration of war. Yeah. Now, if Edward um, could look at the situation and think, well... It's not very nice when, you know, your technical <laughs> feudal overlord demands that you come and answer these petty things and threatens to take your land away from you. Maybe there's a similarity in what's being done to me to what I'm doing to Balliol. I, does he have the insight? Edward does not have the capacity to no. uh, think of things along these lines. He's aware of his own rights, Michael Prestwich was saying, in your interview in that special. Incisive interview, available now. Do check it out. Uh, but he's completely incapable of appreciating that other people might have feelings on this matter. So, instead of sympathising with Balliol, instead, he demands that John Balliol himself and numerous other Scottish nobles assemble their knights and come to Portsmouth to join his army to fight against the French. Right. Now, it's not unprecedented for Scottish lords that uh, have land in England and yeah, we've Scotland, seen this, we? but they're not being called upon as English lords, they're being called upon as Scottish lords. He's calling upon the Scottish king to raise an army and bring it along. Oh, they're being called... Oh, I see, for their lands in England, rather than... No, but they're being called for their lands in Scotland, Scotland because yeah. Edward considers himself feudal oh, lord, gosh. and therefore they have to come and fight yeah. for him. Um, 
the last time this happened was in 1159 with Malcolm IV for Henry II. And he was just Henry II's, in Henry II's pocket, wasn't he? Mm. Quite a good comparison, really, mm. I suppose. Um, politically, this is untenable for Balliol. He's spent the last two years being completely humiliated by Edward I, mm. and now he's being told to raise an army and come and fight the French for him. <laughs> What's more, apparently, um, French, uh, the Scottish economy was quite reliant upon um, the wool trade from Flanders, which was controlled by Philip IV, so right. didn't really make a lot of sense mm. for them to invade France. What happens instead is that the Scots decide... To resist. Quite good timing, though, if, if Edward's off in France. Exactly. But for Balliol, perhaps it's not a great sign, because people aren't very comfortable with the humiliation that he's being dealt. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really stand up to Edward. He talks the talk at home, but whenever Edward is in front of him, he just kind of cowers and folds away and mm. does what he's told. So, there is a council of twelve established, effectively a new lot of guardians, four bishops, four earls, and four lords to advise, inverted commas, the king. is uh, Right, okay, because they're sensing the weakness. Are they in there? So we've got a bit of a Henry III situation yeah. here. We've got the, effectively the nobility mm. taking over mm. <laughs> and doing things for him. In 1295, they make overtures to Philip IV of France. They tell him about Edward's invasion plans, and they sign the Treaty of Paris, which is effectively the beginning of the Old Alliance. I was going to mention that before when the, you, uh, when uh, the, the, that whole Gascony thing kicked off. Mm. And is this the birth of it then? This is where it comes from. So the idea is that if England attacks France, then Scotland will attack in- England, and vice versa if England attacks Scotland, France will invade England. It's great when, you've got, when you sandwich either side of your enemy. Exactly. Easy. It makes a bit of sense. Edward... Um, initially not aware of this, but he soon becomes aware, demands Balliol's presence, because he's still got to answer for the Macduff case. He hasn't handed over castles that Edward's demanded from him, and more to the point, he hasn't turned up with his troops. Yeah, good reasons. The Scots decide to send the Abbot of Arbroath to Edward. Apparently, according to John of Forden, they send this particular abbot, owing to his knavery, he was hateful to many of the lords and others of his country. So basically, they didn't really mind if he didn't manage to make it back. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Which you can understand, because the reason that he's being sent is to tell Edward that John Balliol and Scotland are recalling their homage and their fealty to him. Oh, do I really fear for this abbot. Well, Edward responds. A toi foufelon, tel folie tu fais, si on ne le voit pas venir à nous, nous viendrons à lui. Which broadly means, I mean, I've got the gist of it, but roughly means... I tell you, foolish felon. You commit a great folly, because if the man who has sent you does not come to us, we shall come to him. <laughs> Brilliant. Classic, Edward. Love it. So in 1296, we have war between England and Scotland. Let's have it. So, they both start to muster troops, and the Scots, in March of 1296, make the first move. Uh, John Common leads an attack on Carlisle. In the northwest of England. So they're both, they're both at war, the declaration of war effectively by... Eff- effectively, yeah. but yeah. the Scots are the ones that try to do that initial first surprise mm. attack. Um, isn't successful. Oh. They have to go home. So then Edward responds by sending a huge army mm. into Scotland and uh, initially goes and captures the wealthy but rather poorly defended market town of Berwick and mm. uh, does that very quickly, massacres the population somewhat. Oh. 
Then in April, the English move on to besiege uh, Dunbar, the castle at Dunbar. Oh. Um, Balliol apparently then sends in some reinforcements, some Scottish cavalry, to go and relieve the siege. But the Scottish cavalry is very easily defeated by the much superior English version. Right. The castle surrenders in person to Edward the next day. And then, t- quite frankly, the Scottish forces just capitulate at breakneck speed. Castle after castle, town after town, surrendering like mad without putting up any kind of resistance. Their defence is just completely broken. This is all in the lowlands then before we get to the... the- Islands, is it? It's all yeah, so all the royal castles like uh, Stirling, Edinburgh, yeah. Roxburgh, all the ones down in the south just surrendering oh, and the English army just advancing at great speed. Mm. Which isn't so good. So effectively, after 21 weeks, Edward I conquers Scotland. He's, <laughs> I mean, his dreams have come true, haven't they? <laughs> That's what he's always wanted. John Balliol himself is not actually present at the Battle of Dunbar. Um, And after the defeat, he basically runs away into the north of the country. In June, he sends envoys to Edward for Sue for peace. On the 2nd of July, he confesses to his rebellion. Yeah. Not his rightful war, but the rebellion. Oh, right, yeah. On the 7th of July, he renounces the alliance with France. And on the 10th of July, he abdicates as king. No. He'd hoped that by abdicating he'd be able to secure an earldom for himself because this is what happened in 1282 with Llewellyn ap Griffith in yeah. Wales. In return, he accepts that he's, not long, he's no longer king, gets an earldom, money, land. Happy days. On. Retirement. Edward's not really in a generous mood this time around, mm-hmm. however. And instead, Edward, via Anthony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, puts Balliol through a really humiliating ritual um, in which he has the royal insignia on his cloak, his Surcoat mm. literally physically removed from him. Wow! Hence the nickname Tomb Tabard because he's stripped. Oh of right, the royal insignia. It's an empty cloak. Right. That's. The, I mean, that's hopeless. Edward then returns to England um, with Scottish various Scottish royal regalia, numerous noble prisoners, including John Balliol himself, and has Balliol imprisoned at the Tower of London for the next three years. And apparently on his way home, Edward was said to have remarked, a man does good business when he rids himself of a turd. <laughs> and that's where we get the phrase, doing the business. Um, when you say in prison, the Tower of London, is this in relative luxury like we're used to seeing lords or as now a... No, relative luxury will be right. you know, okay. a, kind of a palace at this point rather mm. than prison. Now, an Anglo-French treaty in 1299 saw Edward cede to papal demands for Balliol to be transferred into the protection of the Pope. Um, So he goes off to France, though he does have his baggage examined at Dover and Edward confiscates the crown and seal of Scotland. Has he already taken the stone of Schoon at this point? Oh, yeah, he's he's taken a lot of things. We'll come to that later. He's taken an awful lot of stuff from Scotland, (laughs) but this was the last of it, and he's got that as well now. Um, Ultimately, he gets established in his ancestral homeland at Bow Castle in Picardy. Mm. So he goes back there. But Scottish resistance leaders do hope to have John Balliol restored as king. Probably not out of any particular personal loyalty, but just the concept of yeah, it's the, the king it's being the returned. Now, isn't it? So they issue edicts in his name. They claim that the abdication was invalid because it was under duress, mm. which it kind of was. Yeah. Now in 1301, an expert in church law from Scotland, Baldwin Bissett, succeeds in persuading Pope Boniface VII to order John Balliol's release and recognise him as the illustrious King of Scots. Right. But 
the French get defeated in Flanders, making new truce with England, and Balliol's release now is simply not going to happen. What's more, John Balliol doesn't really show any particular desire to go back and be king. Oh, I bet. <laughs> he authorises Philip IV to negotiate for him, so he basically just signs away to the French king to so he's the just chats be, with Edward. He, but then he'll... Bemoans a lack of Scottish loyalty when he was king. Yeah, but now he's in the French pocket. Now he's in the French pocket, mm. but, you know, just in his own castle... Mm sat there probably just wants to be left alone just leave me alone yeah and then on the 25th of november in 1314 john balliol dies at chateau de helicor in picardy at about the age of 65 goodness me oh dear oh dear well bad king john b (laughs) but you know we've got to rate him anyway we have i mean maybe when we go into the finer details we'll uncover some hidden gems Mm. that have not been apparent in the first half Battleliness. So, in his favour, mm-hmm. the real thing I've got here is the old alliance. Oh, Treaty yeah. Paris with France. Mutual support with the French, so if one is attacked by English by England, the other will attack England, and thus the Scots have been quite sensible. Rather than do what maybe some of the previous rulers might do and just launch into a raid on the northern England and mm. see what happens. They thought, well, obviously Edward's far too powerful for us to take on alone. Let's make an alliance with France because he's got trouble there. And this is something that lasts for centuries as well, so it's quite a long-standing alliance. It sort of broke down within his reign, though, didn't it? Well, you know. But it was set the precedent. Then. Set a precedent. Also, as part of the Treaty of Paris, Eric II of Norway still kinking around, was apparently offered 50,000 groats to supply 100 ships for four months. That's good value, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he didn't, oh, but, right. you know, yeah. good to try. <laughs> um, there's also a marriage alliance, so John's son, Edward Balliol, would marry Philip IV's niece, Joan. So we've got now a royal marriage alliance with the French niece? royal family. Well, that's not bad, though. Well... It's, yeah, you wouldn't okay. be happy if you were Edward. You wouldn't be happy if the King of Scots' son marries the no. niece of the King of France. That's true. That's, that's the aim, isn't it, really? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now it's sometimes assumed that John Balliol himself doesn't have any involvement in all of this because we've got the Council of Twelve at this point. I was going to say that, that. How much can we give him credit for? But the fact that there is this marriage alliance with his son, and I think the Picardy lands were quite important to some of the process as well. So mm. maybe he wasn't directing events, but he was probably still involved even right. if not the mastermind behind it. I don't think he's sort of Henry VI style, just locked up in a room. And Yeah. In reality, though, France was already going to war with England anyway. True. And too far away to actually help the Scots. So and they don't help the Scots. Basically, yeah. the French, Edward I's invasion of them is scuppered a bit because the Scots invade. Yeah. For the Scots, they get the full wrath of Edward I yeah. and nothing from France. Yeah, they just definitely assured a... a, a a very large army rather than sort of having one of those little skirmishes than yeah. before. Oh dear. The other thing I can say in his favour is that at least Balliol and Scotland do resist Edward and stand up to him. If we think back to that comparison we made before about Malcolm the Fourth and Henry the mm. Second, which in a way is a bit of a similar kind yeah. of relationship that we've got going. Malcolm's desperate to be knighted by Henry, so he does go off and fight and faces rebellion at home never really stands up to Henry quite properly. So, you know, at least the Scots have shown a little bit of balls by... Is that... We were saying that he's all mouth, and then at ho- uh, when he sees Edward, he folds. Mm. It's only really when he has these advisers that he... <laughs> Telling him. Yeah, the has to sort of... I've been told that I'm mm. not going to do this anymore, Edward. 
So, mm. oh, I don't know. I, even the good stuff's a bit tinged. Mm. On the downside... Oh, right. This might take a while. Basically, the entire war of the 1296. <laughs> yeah. The English army, maybe about 4,000 cavalry, 25,000 infantry troops. Wow. So, you know, nearly 30,000 yeah. they're heading up to Scotland. And the troops are battle-hardened. Some will have fought in the crusading armies, um, oh, yeah. in Gascony, but particularly, obviously, the wars against the Welsh. Oh, yes. So they're very, very experienced. Now, the English nobility do have certain divisions that Edward has trouble with, but they're very much on the same page when it comes to Scotland. They all <laughs> consider Scotland to be um, a rebel vassal yeah. state, and they all need to go and sort them out. For Scotland, the position is not quite so good. Much lower proportion of cavalry to infantry than the English. Only a small number of specialist troops like crossbowmen and knights. And they haven't really been involved in any warfare since 1263 when they got the Western Isles back from the Norse. And even that wasn't... That yeah. was just that little scuffle on a beach. Scuffle on the beach. So really, we've had a long period of peace in Scotland and they don't actually do an awful lot of fighting. No. Yeah. See, this is where your high subjectivity score can really backfire for the future generations. <laughs> so the Scots did try to take the initiative with that attack on Carlisle, led by John Comyn. Um, the problem was they didn't really have any of the necessary siege equipment <laughs> or manpower, so they just have to head back without having made any impact they at all. They just sort of turn up and say, give it over, <laughs> and wave a sword at a stone wall, and they go, no. Yeah. Oh, that is bad. So uh, quite a few historians thought that they appear incredibly optimistic or naive in attacking the English at all, and seemed to really misjudge the scale of what was yeah. coming. Yeah, like when when they saw the sort of dust cloud, although it was late in the year, maybe not, they saw them in, in there just rumbling along. Yeah. They must have thought, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> head for the oh, head for the hills. I mean, it head does work. Yeah, yeah, literally yeah. head for the hills. Then we have the sack of Berwick, thirtieth mm. of March. Uh, John of Forden describes this. The section heading is The nobles of Fife sent to guard the town of Berwick. Their death. <laughs> Good title. He's also quite sure about the details. He's quite open for once about perhaps a lack of, uh, oh, some really? of his knowledge. In what year, month or day these things above related happened, the writer of this chronicle did not know for certain. Oh, like he knew the others. <laughs> Just make it up, John. <laughs> Just make it up. Um, now, Berwick is one of Scotland's largest towns. It's a commercial hub, very, very rich and prosperous, but it's really pretty poorly defended. And very close to England. Very close to England. Only really a flimsy palisade mm. and the walls. Now, as well as an army, Edward's also got a navy that he's brought with him. Oh, gosh. But as ever, he doesn't do things by halves. Mm. Unfortunately, while he's approaching Berwick, the sailors mistook the movement of the English army for the attack being launched. And so they, the sailors, sail into the harbour at Berwick before the army is actually ready for them. Oh, right. So they, there's a harbour there that they were going to sail into and attack from there as well. Mm. And so you've got the army coming in, the navy coming in. Brilliant. Yeah. But unfortunately, the sailors have gone in too early. Uh, the first one runs aground and is burnt by the Scots, and two more ships catch fire, and they actually have to retreat. Edward, not terribly pleased when he sees the plumes and smoke going up. Mm. Rather mm. cross immediately orders the trumpets to sound the advance. The English army marches on Berwick, which, being very poorly defended, basically cannot resist them. I suppose he had to, to save his ships. Exactly. And now, as I said, because he considered this a rebellion of vassals rather than a war of equals, and they'd resisted him and burnt his ships, he's pretty comfortable, if not 
angrily shouting at people to do the subsequent slaughter. Yeah, he'd have felt a bit justified doing that, wouldn't he? Bodies apparently fell like autumn leaves. Is this John? Uh, I'm sure that was John or someone else. Um, they're thrown down wells, dumped into the sea, left to rot in the streets. One chronicler says that for two days, streams of blood flowed from the bodies of the slain. Mills could be turned round by the flow of their blood. Oh. Something like seven to 8,000 people are killed from a population of about 13,000. That's as bad as um, uh, Rich the Lionheart putting to death all the... Yeah. Uh, a little bit Cromwellian. Yeah. So Edward absolutely destroys Berwick. So this is probably explains the other towns going on. Hence the other towns thinking, hmm. <laughs> don't fancy that. I don't know about this. We do have one battle, which is Dunbar, on the 27th of April. So we've got the castle being held by the Earl of March, who was actually loyal to Edward, but his wife, one Marjorie Common, apparently lets the Scot- Scottish troops in so they can defend it. What? Oh, so there's split loyalties going yeah. on. She's presumably the more powerful. Yeah. Um, so Edward, Edward sends an army to deal with it. Uh, they offer the Scots surrender, but the garrison in the castle asked to contact John Balliol to agree by what terms they'll surrender. Mm-hmm. But the Scots have been a little bit canny here, oh. because when the messenger gets to Balliol, who's with the main army at Haddington, not too far away, he advises him to send reinforcements and attack the English during the three days of truce. Oh, that's not cricket, is it? Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. So, Balliol sends a relief force to Dunbar to attack the English. Oh, right, I like him less. The Scottish uh, reinforcements arrive, at which point the people defending the castle in the inside unfurl their banners once again and start taunting the English troops by threatening to cut off their tails. What does that point to them? Apparently it was a common medieval belief in Scotland that Englishmen had tails. <laughs> that's so weird. <laughs> that's really good to illustrate quite how uh, little they knew of each other, how little trouble there was. So. Crusaders thinking that the um, native populations of the Middle East were devils and stuff and had <laughs> horns. So, crackerjack. Um, so, the English troops, seeing them arrive, think, oh, come on then, start to prepare themselves into formation. Probably going, do you have a tail? I don't have a tail. <laughs> yeah, fine. Unfortunately, the uh, Scottish cavalry that turn up misinterpret this reforming into line as a rout and so just charge at them downhill, because they'd got yeah. a good position in the Scots, but they charge downhill with no particular order or structure, thinking that they're going to be routing the English, whereas instead they find that the English just reform into a strong formation, much more disciplined. It's all over very quickly. What is with the way those troops move? It keeps getting misinterpreted. <laughs> um, seem to have been a lot of major people killed. There's one Scottish noble called Patrick of Graham who dies, but many others are taken prisoner, including John of Comyn. John of Comyn, John Comyn, mm. um, as well as various Scottish knights, and it's the best part of the army, really, mm. taken out at this point. So the way is now left completely open for Edward. And presumably the, the only specialists that they had, the, the cavalry, <laughs> they're the only real threat that they had. So after Dunbar, it's the fight's taken out of them, and Berwick, of course, is seeing what happens if you do resist. Yeah. Uh, James Stewart surrenders Roxburgh Castle without even being besieged. Stirling Castle apparently totally deserted, apart from the janitor who stayed behind <laughs> to hand over the keys. No way! <laughs> Only Edinburgh really resisted, but it still surrendered after a week of Edward's siege engines turning up. Yeah. 
Um, so, effectively, Scotland conquered after 21 weeks, but in reality, it's pretty much all over after about 17 days. This is very, po- very poor. Edward has all the royal castles. He's got the king himself, many of the uh, Scottish nobles, so there isn't the means to mount a rebellion, because he's got all the important people. And he then holds a parliament at Berwick, where the Scots pay him homage before he heads home. Does he then kill all those Scottish nobles and install English ones? No, no, he's he's not that bad. He's just showing them a lesson. I I might have done that. But he is a fan of symbolism. (laughs) God, he's so lenient. (laughs) If ever I have a criticism of Edward, and I don't often, it's that he's too, uh, too, you know, he's too soft. Too soft. Now, he's a fan of symbolism, Mm, is Edward. And he really wants to emphasise that the Kingdom of Scotland basically doesn't exist as a legal entity anymore. So he takes the crown jewels from Edinburgh Castle, mm. the Black Rood of St Margaret, which is their holiest relic, because it's St Margaret, the, Margaret, Margaret. That's St Margaret, yeah. so this is uh, part of the True Cross. Right. Takes that. All the royal records, Scotland are inventoried and shipped to England, though unfortunately the ship sinks, so we actually lose loads oh, no. of great historical documents oh, because of this. Shame, maybe. But the biggie, really, is the Stone of Schoon, mm. or Stone of Destiny. This is um, an ancient stone alleged to have been brought to Scotland by Columba in the 6th mm. century. All the Scottish monarchs um, are inaugurated on it, so we're going all the way back to Kenneth MacAlpin, way back into ancient mythical history. Edward removes the stone from Schoon and has it fitted into a new wooden chair, King Edward's chair, which is at Westminster Abbey. This is apparently the oldest English furniture with a known artist. Ah. And it's sat on by every future crowned monarch except for Mary II. Why? Because William III sat on it and she sat on the replica. Um, Until the 17th century, they actually sat on the stone itself. But subsequent to that, they built a little platform over the top of it. Mm. Now, there are some conspiracy theories around the stone of Schoon. Some suggest that the monks gave him a fake. Oh! So, if that's true, the one that was returned in the late 90s, Mm. we returned a fake that they're now having to pretend is the real one. (laughs) And there's also, even some people suggest, the fact that it doesn't get really mentioned in 13th or 14th century sources, was this even just an invention of Edward I? Is the whole Stone of Schoon thing actually just a self-fulfilling propaganda by Edward? He just brought back some old stone and said, Aha, this sacred stone. It sounds made up, doesn't it? The sword is a stone of destiny. Um, if they had got the stone, the Scots, then they never bothered to get it out again, which seems a bit of an odd thing to do when mm. they start crowning Robert the Bruce. Edward had followers who would have known it and be able to spot a, a fake. And a 1996 study, before it was given back, did reveal that it is an ancient artefact from Schoon. Right. Okay. So, so it probably is true. Probably is. Now, through all of this, we've seen all this capitulation, these defeats, it's all been really bad, and John Balliol's not really been getting much of a mention. True. And that's because there's a complete absence of leadership. He never gets anywhere near the fighting. He sends troops to Dunbar, but he doesn't actually go along himself. Mm. And afterwards, he then runs off into the north Mm. and just hides. Yeah. Basically. Until he then sort of gives up and capitulates and how he capitulates such a groveling Mm. um letter that he writes to edward (laughs) we have by evil and false counsel and our own folly grievously offended our lord edward we have surrendered to him the land of scotland and all its people oh my word so we get the tomb tabard this unprecedented humiliation for a king it's actually what you do for a, a 
an earl or a lord that had been treacherous and was being stripped mm, of their symbolism. rank. Mm. Much more symbolism there. He was never able to get all of the nobles um, on hand. Robert Bruce um, was actually in charge of defending Carlisle for Edward. Right. So okay, actually some so of the Scots... Fought. Yeah, and he gets others... Um, to either fight for him, Edward gets them to fight for him, or they just don't help Balliol when That's called upon. Fascinating. So, uh, do, so the implication is that Robert the Bruce, not yet the Bruce, but okay, he um, had did this with an eye on the crown himself. Exactly. Mm. So Balliol isn't actually able to command the full allegiance of the Scots, which, at the very least, you're going to need if you're going to take on yeah. Edward the first. I get the idea that he was sort of. Really had like three or four horses that had a, had a hodgepodge of armour that they sort of <laughs> threw on and then thought, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> Made a huge mistake. Yeah. A final insult for John Balliol. Uh, the man in charge at Dunbar is a chap called John de Warren, who's the grandson of William Marshall. Hey! He'd been with Edward in uh, Castile, the Battle of Lewis, as well as his Welsh campaigns. Uh-huh. He's the earl who apparently presented his ancestral sword in protest at the Quo Moronto under Edward, or Edward demanded that people prove why they've got certain rights. Oh, and he yeah. gets out the sword from Hastings, effectively said, this is my warrant. Oh, right, one a sword that had been... Yeah. Wow, power. Um, so he's the one who's in charge of the English troops at Dunbar, which is the one battle that really seals the deal for the Scots. And he's also the one that actually comes to Balliol first and brings him into English custody. What was his name? His name is John de Warren. And if you're thinking that the Warren bit sounds familiar, that's because you will recall earlier that I told you that John Balliol married a woman called Isabel de Warren. Right. The man that inflicts this massive defeat and takes him into custody is his own father-in-law. Oh, final humiliation. So he was. So his own family weren't backing him. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, this guy sounds brilliant. So there is the uh, battliness record for John Bailey. Oh, were you thinking a uh, oh, seven and eight, perhaps? What do you reckon? Put a little dash in front of that, and <laughs> maybe. Uh, it can't... I could, nothing. No. Not... Pass de sausage. <laughs> That's got to be a zero. That is... I mean, that is as bad as it gets from a military perspective. Yeah. Couldn't get a more humiliating defeat. Defeated at every turn. Wasn't even there himself. And capitulated and uh, abdicated and then admitted defeat and <laughs> fault in the most uh, ab- uh, you know in the most definite way possible yeah can we put it in bold <laughs> we should shouldn't we that's a big zero for battliness scandal I don't really have very much here I mean you know before he was Appointed as king, apparently he promised uh, Beck, the Bishop of Durham, lands in Scotland worth 500 marks a year, probably hoping to curry favour. I mean, I imagine bribery is rife exactly. in those days. So not enough bribery. That, he's yeah. failed there. And he, doesn't, he obviously doesn't do it well enough to have any kind of influence yeah. over Beck. No. It's another zero for John Balliol. He's in my bad books now, not even scoring on Scandal. Subjectivity. Well, there's some suggestion that he was showing certain signs of being able to administrate the country fairly well. The king's household is this authoritative treatise on governing the kingdom that's apparently prepared for his guidance in 1292, which is quite an an effective document, apparently. 
the fact that it was written perhaps implies that he needed instruction. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Despite the opposition of the Bruces, they are largely held in check, so there's never any point at which it looks like he's in danger of a civil war being overthrown from within Scotland. Well, apart from the twelve, the guidance of the twelve... Yeah, but they don't overthrow him, and they do no. make that marriage alliance for his son, which implies that the Balliol dynasty is seen as being central and continuing. And even yeah. after he's gone and he's been so useless, they're still kind of trying to bring him back. I think that maybe that first bit is because they there's no... There's no civil war because the Bruces are clever mm. and know that his position is shaky. Yeah. The Council of Twelve are just rallying around some form of um of figurehead. Fi- yeah, figurehead to to defy Edward. Mm. And then um even in the last bit when they still are backing him, it's because there's no one else really. They don't want to <laughs> they really, really want to stick it to Edward. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad. But there's some more. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying for Balliol. Apparently there are eight uh, meetings of Parliament in three years that he's king. And Parliament really becomes a very important body for establishing the consent of the realm in this period. And apparently the 1293 Parliament at Schoon is the first of which there's a proper formal record surviving. And it does survive him as a vital form of government. Robert Bruce and the Stuarts after him Mm. continue this. So there's something of a legacy that he's perhaps because of his situation, he's trying to govern by consent. And maybe his willingness for the Council of Twelve to come along indicates that, you know, he's not just trying to throw false authority around. He's like, well, I've got to rule with people. So Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is great, isn't it? Sort of having a bit more, well, in, involving Parliament. I mean, sort of success seems to be the closer we get to today. <laughs> but uh, how much of that was his idea? Yeah, or just his weakness. Yeah. Hmm. Finally, justice. There is evidence that he does make a bit of an effort. He creates three new sheriffdoms in Skye, Argyle, and Tyre, which are out in the west, relatively new territories for the Scots. So he is trying to expand royal justice in some of the more distant areas of his kingdom. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Great, yeah, okay. On the downside. We said many times already, we don't need to go to again, but the country is not divided. Bruce isn't with him. Um, the sheriffdoms are given exclusively to his allies. It's not unusual for a Scottish king or any king to appoint you know, their closest allies in these positions, mm. but when you're already a pretty partisan figure... Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're try- not- it sort of detracts from the positive that you're saying about ruling uh, with consent. the people. Yeah, like and particularly when you have all of these disgruntled nobles going to Edward I for redress, mm. indicates that there's a lack of... Um, unity even at the lower levels so the ones i've mentioned but even james stewart um angus of islay they write to edward because they feel hard done by mm. and it's a weakness of Balliol that they think well we'll just go to edward then they don't you know you can't yeah. imagine previous monarchs no going to the problem. english king yeah exactly um the 1293 parliament also acknowledges Balliol's rights of inheritance to his uncle's lands in berwickshire and issued a letter of protection for merchants in amiens uh, amiens which in picardy um so Basically, he's kind of just doing a few things for himself at this very Mm. important parliament. So it's not quite such amazing (laughs) subjectivity. The war is... bad. I mean, the national humiliation. First of all, all of his acts of homage and submission to Edward I in the years before the war. The Council of Twelve is pretty humiliating for him on a personal level. 
um, and indicates that there is a real lack of faith in his ability mm. to lead the country. Um, Scotland is conquered with ridiculous ease and speed yeah. by Edward. Um, it loses its king, its nobles, um, and all the royal regalia that Edward just takes. The Stone of Schoon and the crown jewels, so that holy relic. That's like Blitzkrieg, isn't it? That's like the uh, Nazis rolling through Belgium type speed. It's, it's inexplicable. You think back to Alexander III, the idea that just 17 days and yeah. a couple of skirmishes, it's just all... From that great position to ...rolled now. over. And... Um, after this, the borders and Scotland, borders in particular, but Scotland in general, is really going to have the next few centuries of basically war and divisions and... Not good. Nastiness. I think that the bad stuff more than outweighs the good. <laughs> Ever so slightly. Zero. E- even those sheriffdoms and... Oh, I loved a bit of sheriffdoming. Uh, but no. Zero. I'm afraid it's got to be another zero for John Balliol. I mean, you would not want to be a subject in this period... No, 100%. And I think if you are a Scottish person looking back at your history, this is not perhaps going to be one of the prouder moments that you would look back on. Yeah, yeah, zero. Big, fat, round zero. Longevity. Well, he is king. This Uh, does happen, Yeah. so he's going to score. Okay. He's king from the 17th of November, 1292, to the 10th of July, 1296. So that's 3.67 years, which gives him a score... Of three out of twenty. Dynasty, not the program. Well, there's a little bit of debate about this, but we're going to say three children. Okay. He definitely has one son, Edward Balliol, who continues on the family oh, dynasty. Yeah. Um, but he's also thought to have had another son, Henry, and a daughter, either Agnes or Maud, by name. <laughs> right. They're quite different. <laughs> they're quite different, aren't you? <laughs> Are we sure they're not two different people? <laughs> well, I do wonder about that. Um, so that's three children... Yeah. Um, which gives him a score of 6 out of 20, hmm. which, added to that longevity score, gives him a total of 9 out of 20. Uh, 9 out of 20. 9. nine. <laughs> Do you know what I will say for him? He didn't die in battle, which for a Scottish king... Mm. Actually, for a Scottish king, is probably quite bad. Given that there was a massive yeah. war in which the entire nation was conquered. He could have at least had a final stand. In his defeat, he could have gone down. He didn't, didn't even go into battle. But that doesn't mean that no. he doesn't have that certain something, that star quality, that lasting legacy that we call... Rex Factor! I can't possibly believe that you even have anything written down there. The one thing I've got oh. written down, and I don't really think that it's right or valid, but could we give him the Rex Factor on the basis that this is just about as bad as you could get? This is about the worst of Scottish rulers that you could imagine having. It's so abject. Is it magnificently abject? Oh, that's interesting. What do we do for the really bad English ones? Do uh, we ever give a really bad... Because you've got to have bad... We just dismissed them out of hand, I think, really. Yeah, I've, before we said you've got to have baddies up there in this pantheon, mm. but I think we mean, like, evil. evil baddies, not just awful kings. Yeah. It's not iconically bad, it's just rubbish. Yeah. It's not like there's some massive defeat. I mean, there was a massive defeat, but even that, there wasn't a, a pitched battle that we still talk of today. No. I, I mean... Obviously, I'm not going to give it to him, but I can't even expand on any reason why, <laughs> other than he's just terrible. 
I think this is fair to say, if you exclude the ones where there's no real information or they you know, get killed after a year or die of seasickness before they get to Scotland, <laughs> yeah. I think this is the worst that we've had. Mm. Can I understand why he's the Joker? He didn't even need his shiny mm. legs. No. <laughs> Just weighing him down. Slowing down his retreat. That is a no, then, for John Balliol. He does not have the Rex factor. Mm-hmm. Boo. That was disappointing. You were, mean, you, were, you were looking for... You were, had high I, hopes before... I did. You... I really did. I mean, think how I described him. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not as disappointed as perhaps a subject in the 1290s would have been. But <laughs> still. Anyway, that is it for John Balliol. But uh, if you disagree with us or you want to add anything you can get in touch with us um follow us and message us on twitter at rex factor pod like us on facebook and Please get do. involved in the discussion there email rex podcast at hotmail.com or go to rexfactor.wordpress.com read the blogs and complete a poll to say whether or not you think Baliol or any of the previous other monarchs deserve the rex factor if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so. You can leave a review on iTunes. That's very helpful. Helps us get noticed and then more people click on us and then mm. start to listen. You can make a one-off donation on PayPal. Follow the links on our websites. And Tim Holden has done so since oh, last time. Oh, thank you very much, Tim. Very, very thank you. Mu- very, very, very thank, thank you much. much. That's the, this is the, <laughs> come on, Graham, you've got the memory. This is how we thank them. <laughs> very, very thank you much. Um, or you can do crowdfunding where you do a monthly payment. So you click the Be My Patron link. Um, for $1 a month, you get a mention on the podcast. $2 a month, you get a comment read out. $5 a month, you get a mug. Oh, and I've posted about that on Facebook today. $10. Sorry. sorry. $10. <laughs> <laughs> None of you. <laughs> what is going wrong with us today? $10 a month, a blog on the subject of your choice. Or $15 a month, you get to commission your own podcast special episode. Whoa. And our last special episode we've released was on Edward I, or specifically Ali's dissertation. Yes. Featuring an interview with renowned historian Michael Prestwich. Yes. These are all available to buy for just $2 uh, a time. But if you're a privy counsellor, you get access to all the special episodes for free. Yeah, that's beginning to get really quite good value because there's a number there now, isn't there? How many up. have we done? Uh, three. Three. We've got we've fourth, in the, fourth line. in the pipeline. Um, our new ist, newest privy councillor <laughs> is Freya Brand. Very, very thank you much, Freya. Arise, uh, Freya. <laughs> you are our latest ist. So, if you've been following us on Facebook, you'll know that Ali is very much into his audiobooks at the moment. Certainly am. Uh, so, we've teamed up with the uh, leading audiobook provider, Audible, to bring you a really great offer for all our Rex Factor listeners by following our custom link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash Rex Factor podcast. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and download an audiobook of your choice absolutely free. Fiction, non-fiction, even classic BBC uh, radio shows. Yeah, very good. You can pick up on there. Um, It's also helpful for us because every time somebody signs up for this free trial and downloads a free audiobook, we get a little thank you from Audible. Win-win. So, um, this is also a chance for Ali to continue where he left off with his special on uh, Edward I (sighs) and uh, take a little bit of a lead. So, um, Ali, I think you're going to introduce a new feature. He's read a book. He's read a book. He's got it from Audible. He's read a book. It's Ali's book review. Ooh. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Ali, <laughs> uh, um, what have you been reading this time? <clears throat> it is called Three Sisters, Three Queens, the unabridged version by Philippa Gregory, narrated by Bianca Amato. 
And so, in brief, without giving too many spoilers away for people that might want to listen to it, what's mm. it basically about? Well, the three sisters in question are Henry VIII's sister, yep. called Margaret, mm-hmm. Henry VIII's first wife, who we all know, of course, as Catherine of Aragon, and his third sis- second third sister is his other s- actual sister, whose name escapes me. But the important one there is his first sister, Margaret, and it's her life. It's sort of written from her perspective. It's all her diary. She's the one that becomes Queen of Scots. Is that that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. So it's her adventure going from uh, um, a Princess of England to a Queen of Scotland and looking at how her fortunes rise and fall in comparison to the other two sisters of the title. Mm. Um, if you like... Uh, Worry, worry, stabby, stabby, type of historical fiction, not for you. It's more of an interesting look at the life of a royal princess in Tudor times, and from a female's perspective, which is really quite interesting. And which you don't often uh, get in some of the other historical fiction. So is uh, Philippa Gregory's speciality. And uh, Bianca Amato does a lot of the heavy lifting here with the accents. Mm. She is forced to play Spaniards of both genders, um, <laughs> Scots of both genders. So occasionally that... that I mean, it's worth listening to, to for that alone. <laughs> but it's a good, solid four-hour Tudor romp through history. Uh, but, you know, sparing a bit of the blood. So, if you want to uh, listen to that, then you can download it for free. Uh, that address again is audibletrial.com forward slash Rex Factor Podcast. And uh, if you've read that book and have got any thoughts on it, or if you have got any other suggestions for what Ali can uh, be reading in the yeah. future, let us know. I've got a song for the end as well. Okay. It's the end of the book review. It's the end of the book review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now we've had some messages from our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, first up, Catherine on Twitter at Triangle Girl Forty Two. She says, "My new favourite podcast, Rex Factor, included a random oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> included a random interlude about Alexander Hamilton several years before he was a thing. He's a thing now. Uh, oh yeah, I was wondering whether you can be aware of this. You know, the musical Hamilton." There's yeah. this very, very successful, very popular new musical based on the life and times of Alexander Hamilton. I did not know that. It's a very big thing, winning lots and lots of awards. In America or here too? Um, I think it has come over here as well. Oh, right. I'll um, go and have a look at it. But you remember a while ago, we had someone who wrote in who called themselves I Love Alexander Hamilton. Yes. And we didn't actually know who they were. Yeah. So we were kind of behind the times, but in theory, we're actually ahead of the times. Yeah, our previous selves were ahead of us and times. And still ahead of us because you haven't yet yes. caught up the fact that this is a big thing. But nice to be reminded. Yeah. <laughs> On Facebook, uh, Ira Catherine Thomas messaged in about Edmund Ironside and Harold II, mm. saying, Oh, come on, Rex Factor podcast. No to Edmund Ironside and Harold Godwinson. Your logic, no matter how well thought out and understandable your decision is, is far too Vulcan for me. Ooh. If this was X Factor, whatever that is, I would have thrown my hummus and carrot snack at the TV. <laughs> These two stood up and fought against overwhelming odds. You have to be crazy to take on the challenge of 1016 and 1066. It's about the journey, not the destination. By Vulcan, does she mean Star Trek? I think she does, yes. Geeky points! <laughs> uh, I think we've got to be Vulcan, though, really, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, we were, it was hard. We liked both of them a yeah. lot. Really impressive. And so they were so close to achieving something amazing. 
but it's because they were so close that it's exciting. But actually, they just didn't, just didn't quite they do it. Didn't quite. They had their hand on the pinnacle of the mountain, but unfortunately, there was William the bastard to tread on their fingers and, and send them down the slope. In ten sixteen, um, but they were awesome. It would have been lovely to yeah. have given it to them. Um, Anders Thor sent us an email about Swedish monarchs. He says, check out the weird, brother-killing, war-loving group that is the Swedish royal line. For example, Eric Fourteenth named himself Eric Fourteenth, even though no one knows about the previous 30, <laughs> proposed to half of Europe, including Queen Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots, but was rejected, partially because he had two girlish calves, oh. gradually went insane and killed a lot of royals, in some cases by himself, and was at last captured and imprisoned by his brother, where he was killed by a poison pea soup. The Scots have nothing on us. That is brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that. I'd quite like to have another look at them. Hmm. Ginger Mullen uh, emailed in, I'm recommending an illustrated version of the Victorian mnemonic on how to remember the kings and queens of England, um, which has subsequently been updated. I was going to say, that's incomplete. Yeah, it has been uh, added to get to Elizabeth II. Um, so this is like Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, Three, One, Two, Three, Neds, Richard, Two, Harry's Four, Five, Six, then who? Etc. Etc. Oh, cool! It's a way of remembering all of the monarchs. Yeah, um, but she said it begins with William the Conqueror. Not surprisingly, perhaps you can come up with some verses for the Saxon kings. Oh, yeah. So, if you'd like to uh, message him, maybe think of a mnemonic to remember the Saxon and uh, Viking kings before we get to 1066. Great idea. Love to hear from you. And I absolutely loved this email from Sonny Taylor about Lord North, which is an anecdote that I had not come across because otherwise it would absolutely have been included. So apparently Lord North was once attending... This is a politician prime minister. Mm. Um, Lord North was once attending a performance at Covent Garden where he was approached in his box by a slight acquaintance. Slight in the sense of he didn't know him very well. Not (laughs) Not slim. Small man. (laughs) The two men spoke superficially for a while. Then the visitor asked, Who is that plain-looking woman in the box opposite? That is my wife, replied Lord North amiably. "Uh, No, no, said the North's companion, trying desperately to save face. I meant the dreadful monster sitting next to her. Oh, gosh. That, sir, is my daughter. Oh, gosh. We are considered to be three of the ugliest people in London. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, what a star. Then there's a coda to this where Viscount Goderick, who she quite rightly, I think, describes as possibly the most obscure prime minister of all time, uh-huh. once related this tale at dinner to the lady sat next to him. And after he delivered the punchline, she said to him, I know that story. I am Lord North's wife. Oh, God. Oh, no. Just, that's like some sort of horrible zombie gag that uh, needs to be put to death. Oh, dear. So, uh, thank you very much for that excellent anecdote. Great messages, as ever. Do keep them coming in. Uh, So, until next time, when we find out what will emerge from the kingless Scotland, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio!